Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Melitzas. I'm here with Carrie Alavelt. Welcome to our weekly show about politics, Daily Coast, The Brief. We have a great show for you today. You know, I've been I've been obsessing about Mississippi every chance I get. It almost seems like I'm a one trick pony. And so I'm really excited that today we have two time Mississippi uh, candidate Mike Espy. He ran for Senate twice. Uh, amongst other things. And so we're going to talk about just how realistic it is, this whole idea that maybe Mississippi can be the next Georgia. I think it is. We'll see what Mike <laughs> SB has to say about that. <laughs> and that, it really is. I'm a, I'm a one-trick pony. So it's like uh, a, You're like a dog with a bone. You just you can't let it go. You just can't so, let it go. Carrie, I was like this with Georgia for 10 years. Like I, I go back and, and I could see my I could see my writing 10 years ago talking about how Georgia is demographically a purple state and people would laugh or they'd shrug me off or, or, or nobody took it seriously until. Well, whoa, <laughs> you know, suddenly Georgia is is purple. Right. But, it, you know, Joe Biden won it. And we got two Senate seats right. there. So I actually think Mississippi is on that similar trajectory. Now, it's no nothing soon. I mean, you know, let's not say this is not an imminent switch, but it is the kind of state that given the proper investment in on the ground organizing the way Stacey Abrams did for the last eight years, Georgia didn't happen overnight. And this is a theme that right. we've talked about uh, with Georgia and Arizona. And, you know, hopefully we'll get into Texas and North Carolina. But these states don't flip overnight. Right. So, so true. My, my big question for you is, I mean, one of the things that I think made Georgia possible where, I mean, it was obviously partly the, the organizing in the rural areas. Right. I mean, and just, yes. you know, that that diehard effort to get out there and sign people up. But the other thing was, is that. You know, Georgia spent a, like almost 20 years being a destination. Um, sorry, Atlanta spent almost 20 years being a je- destination spot for Southern kids who went off to um, school and graduated and then said, where do we want to live in in the South? Right. And in Atlanta really became a hot spot for them. And I think it was part of what managed to turn the demographics. And I just wonder, you know, Jackson is. Mississippi's biggest city and could it have that type of pull? I mean, people were talking about a similar type of demographic change in potentially in North Carolina, you know, with the the triangle, the research triangle drawing people and whatever, but that state yeah. hasn't quite turned the corner yet. I don't know. I, I'm just wondering that's the, it, the rural possibilities are really big in Mississippi. But the question to me is that is, you know, getting that type of, you know, suburban educated voter attraction that Atlanta has, the pull, the draw it has. Yeah, no, for sure. And every one of these states is is different. I mean, Arizona didn't have that sort of central Phoenix wasn't exactly the hot destination. It was just an untapped sort of reservoir of American Indian and Latino uh, potential voters that had not been activated. So every state's different. And that's why I'm excited to talk to Mike Espy about what Mississippi needs 
in order to sort of get over that hump. But before we bring him on, Carrie, I am really struck at the uh, sort of the I, I don't understand that. I feel the, like we, we, we've been marveling over this for like three weeks. The Republicans weeks, refusing to vote for the COVID relief bill. I mean, this is this is getting free money to people. It pulls into 70 percent everywhere we look. Right. It is wildly yeah. popular. And yet, I mean, there was a poll today, I think, Carrie, that it had the COVID relief bill more popular than puppies. It did. It was. More it was. Popular, and I wrote yeah, it up. It puppies. was more popular than puppies. <laughs> I, I think it. I think people. If I, I didn't write up that part of it, it was cute. But I didn't write up that part of it. But I think puppy. You know, more people wanted the COVID relief bill at like close to fifty percent. It was close to that, versus a pup. Puppies were the getting a puppy was in like you know, 23, 25% or something like that. So, so, <laughs> so more popular. More, po- more popular. Yeah. And now after the Republicans in the House voted 100%, not a single defection, not even the so-called moderates voted for it. Now it's going to the Senate. And the Senate's going to be a little more interesting because you have a couple of independent-ish Republicans like Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and maybe even Susan Collins of Maine who haven't particularly been... Um, receptive to leadership's demands on things like like the uh, the impeachment vote. Right. But but Mitch McConnell is actually whipping for 100 percent Republican rejection of this bill. So once again, they're seeing these numbers, the, the mass popularity of this vote. And yet they're making this bet that voting against it will help them in 2022. Like, what are they thinking? Do you have any yeah. ideas? Well, <laughs> Oh, trying to get into the GOP mind is always a dangerous place to go. Um, so, 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 I mean, first of all, you know, there is, they're whipping just like they did in the House. And like you said, they're doing in the Senate now, right? They're whipping votes against it, which is a lot different than saying, we oppose it at the leadership level, but we're going to let people vote, take a vote of conscience or, or vote your district, right? So, yeah. so they didn't even want people to be to vote their district, vote their vote their state. I mean, they don't even. That's not even the consideration they want for them. Twenty twenty two to be a vote a referendum on this it's, COVID I, relief I, bill. I find it. I find it. I find it crazy to be honest. And 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 here's the bet that they've got to be making. They've either got to be making the bet that you know the the economy is going to tank, that this isn't going to help. And then they'll be able to say, well, none of us voted for this. It's all the Democrats' fault, right? I mean, that's what leadership. Or they're betting that the tribalism of not voting for something that was, you know, brought by uh, if if the economy doesn't tank and things go well, they're they're voting that the tribalism is more important than helping out their own constituents, which is a completely, you know, which is just a cynical ploy. It's just horrible that they would place tribalism, you know, and sticking with their party, sticking with Trump or whatever over actually doing what their constituents may need. And, and many of their constituents want, I mean, on top of the 70% that we're talking about, and I've looked at many, many polls now, and they're all at, you know, approaching 70% support for the whole bill or over it. And key provisions of it in this um, in this in this puppy poll today um, 
had, you know, there were four provisions, including the direct payments, including increasing access to um, vaccines, placing a limit on premiums, on health insurance premiums, so they weren't more than 9% of your income. Um, those type of things, they all pulled it over 50% with Republican <clears throat> with voters. With Republicans. Republican yes. voters, right? So, so this is, I mean... I personally, and I wrote this this weekend, I personally think that they did, that Republicans are doing Democrats a favor. Democrats are going to live and die in 2022 by how well they managed to get a hold of coronavirus, right? And that's that fair. Is, that's that is totally fair. fair. That's what Biden ran on. That's yep. what they have, you know, they have control of Congress now. So, you know, it's up to them to pass these, this legislation. And, you know, but, but Republicans are, are just, even in districts, you know, because there are, there are these small number of districts, right? 16 districts, right? That are crossover districts in 2020, where someone Smallest either- number in 70 years. Smallest number in a long time. And in yeah. these yeah. crossover districts or these, um, you know, where people split their tickets, where they voted for either Biden at the top and Republicans down ballot, or they voted for Trump at the top and Democrats down ballot. And so you've got 16 of these districts. I mean, these are exactly the type of dri- districts where um, nine, nine Republicans hold seats right now that in districts that Biden won. And this is exactly where you would think that, you know, that that leadership would want because, I mean, the control of the House could come down to like two or three seats in 20 in 2022 or not. I mean, or it could be a landslide one way or the other. And we end up, you know, Democrats either grow the majority or lose. But, you know, why you wouldn't poise your people to vote their districts so that they're the most competitive that they can possibly be, why you would back them into the corner of, you you know, of voting against this, right? So no one wanted to be the sole person. Yeah, they, they, think, they think that this old playbook where they can run and say Democrats weren't bipartisan will somehow move votes. Like there's, a, like there's somebody out there who's going to base their vote on the bipartisan actions uh, and bipartisan defined the Mitch McConnell way, right? It's with Republican votes in Congress right. as opposed to, like you said, legislation that is popular, not just with the American people. But with Republicans having majority support amongst Republicans, rank and file Republicans. So, Carrie, I think it's time to bring our guest on. He is Mike Espy, the former congressman. He is a former secretary of agriculture. He is a two-time Senate candidate in the state of Mississippi. Secretary Espy, thank you so much for joining us. Buckles, thank you so much for having me. Good to see everybody. So, uh, Secretary, I have this theory, and I, I, swear to, I swear I'm this one-trick pony lately, where I've just been talking about Mississippi's the next Georgia, Mississippi's the next Georgia. Nobody believes me, because when you look at the actual numbers, right, Donald Trump won Mississippi by, what, like 16 points. Am I completely crazy to be talking up Mississippi as a state that we can make competitive? Well, I'm on that pony with you. I'm, I'm, right, I'm right there with you. Uh, you know, Mississippi is not is not Georgia. You know, Jackson is not not Atlanta. But uh, in about five, six, seven years, I think I think we're going to be there. Uh, and I think my race really shows it. Uh, we got more votes. You know, I ran 2018 and then again in 2020. And uh, we got 46.6 percent in 2018. And this last cycle, 2020, we got more votes 
than any Democrat who's ever run for federal office in Mississippi's history. We got more votes than Barack Obama 2008, more votes than Barack Obama 2012. In 2020, more votes than Joe Biden. We got uh, 40,000 more votes than Joe Biden. We led the ticket. And it's not just black votes. We got more Republican votes than any Democrat running for the Senate in America, except the candidate in Montana. So, and we're still lost. So I think the difference is just not being organized enough. Reverend Barber, someone we all know, head of the Poor People's Campaign, he has a saying, he says, Mississippi is not so much red as it is unorganized. And by that, he means very low-income people have a propensity, sometimes so many obstacles, socioeconomically, educationally. Uh, they're not informed as they ought to be. They're not motivated sometimes as they should be. And so they therefore don't vote. And so it was our job. I'm not putting the onus on them. It was our job to get them out to vote. And I think that um, we came up a, a little bit short because of COVID, because of all of that going on back then. But mostly because we raised $16 million. That's that's plenty enough money to win in Mississippi, not nearly enough to win in Georgia, but in Mississippi it is. But the money didn't come in until about September, October, and the election was in November. So if any of your listeners could just remember one thing, early money is the best money, you know, early investment, you know, I mean, I talked to my friend Stacey Abrams, who's also Mississippian, and uh, she says uh, to me that we're going to be talking again next week. She says to me that uh, everybody thinks that we did this in one cycle. It took 10 years to do this. Right. And so it's going to take about almost that much longer for Mississippi to enter the pantheon of swing states. Right now, we have about 38% African-American, more than any state in the nation per capita. And in about 10 years from now, they say it's going to be up like 46, 47 percent. That's more than enough to get out to vote and then encourage crossover. So I will say this. This election, 2020, the highest turnout in Mississippi's history on both sides. We have about 2.1 million voting age population. And about 1.31 million showed up to vote. That's 6.2%. So I'm happy that more voted for me than anyone else in the nation uh, in Mississippi, more than Joe Biden. But, but you know, on the other side, they responded to the Donald Trump clarion call. He says, come out and vote in person. And by God, they did. And that's why we can I Can I just ask real quick, since we're since you mentioned early money, and this is becoming a regular, you know, drum that we've been pounding on, but if, if people were to want to invest in Mississippi right now, today, what is the one of the best organizations that you think they could send money to? I mean, short of sending money to a candidate right now, right? Right. Are there organizations like Fair Fight Georgia or whatever that are doing the, the that organizing work? Well, again, I've got to invoke my friend Stacey Abrams' name. We have Fair Fight Mississippi. Oh, and so great. they did they did a really good job in voter information, mm-hmm. voter education. Uh, you know, they didn't have in, in their charter, they're not so much encouraging <clears throat> people to get out to vote. They're mostly legal. So we do have uh, Fair Fight Mississippi. But more than that, uh, they are, I would like them to invest in the state party. 
because that's what we see entrenched weaknesses. You know, uh, Joe Biden did endorse me, but that campaign really, honestly, to be honest, that's pretty much all they did. So if they had come in earlier to, to, to have done more, at least with the state party, to register to vote, to encourage to turn out, you know, that's really what we need. And there are organizations here to do that. So, uh, Secretary, I'm almost kind of bummed that you mentioned our friend Reverend Barber, because uh, uh, we've been talking to them about having him on the show. And I'm going to be asking him about Mississippi instead of North Carolina. Yes. <laughs> but Well, he's, so, he's been in Mississippi, you know, uh, <laughs> whenever you're the head of the poor people's organization, you're going to be familiar with Mississippi. So, right. so he's very educated on rural vote and uh, what it takes just motivate people to come out. I mean, I've done I've done a tour as of late, uh, you know, and for other purposes since I lost. And uh, I just get so disheartened that when I walk in, most everyone will know me. Probably 70% of them voted for me, but then there's that other 30%. They didn't even know there was an election. You right. know, what did you, what did you run for? And I'm going, <laughs> okay, you, you know. Uh, so we just need more education, more information, compelling them to come out, making sure they understand they have a vested interest in voting. You know, that's it just seems like that work should no longer have to be done, but it does. So there are two sort of main factors that I when I when I look at Mississippi that that uh, are sort of impediments to to winning and, and our challenges is a better word the challenges we need to overcome to make Mississippi a competitive state. Uh, I'll, I'll let I'll let Carrie ask about the the rural uh, part of uh, of Mississippi because it's half half the state is is rural. It's the fourth largest percentage of, uh, of any state in the country, the fourth most rural state in the country. Yes. Uh, and it, it blows my mind that there's only one city above 100,000, which is Jackson, and only two between 50 and 100,000. So it's it's very much a, a, a rural state. And I know Carrie loves talking about rural America, so I'll leave that to her. My question is on the on the demographic side of it. So yes, you mentioned 38% of the state is, is uh, black. Then you have, what, another 3 to 4% that are Latino and Asian and mixed race. So you, you have like low 40%. If you were to sort of look at the demographics, you think, okay, you only need about 15, 20% of the white vote to yes. actually have a competitive state. And we're not getting 15 to 20% of the white vote, right? I think we're lucky to get, what, 12% in any given election. How do you overcome that, or do you even need to overcome that? Is, is the demographic changes in the state going to overwhelm that that ability of the white vote to, to basically uh, overrule this large non-white community in the state? We have uh, we have eighty-two counties in Mississippi, and in this last election, five counties were Donald Trump and Mike Espy. Five. So uh, you got to believe that these voters were, uh, in many cases. Um, white. And then, as I said, we beat Joe Biden by 40,000 votes. So those that went in the poll, you'd have to extrapolate and say the uh, difference between the, the, the Biden vote and the Mike S.P. 40,000 plus vote were white persuasion votes. Okay. So um, they're here. They're here. And uh, again, we're no longer as cosmopolitan as Georgia. We're not there yet. But we do have uh, a lot of suburban growing areas, like those areas outside of Memphis, Tennessee, right. where we did very, very, very well. 
And then we have the college towns around, you know, you may be familiar with the University of Mississippi. Yeah, well, that's, in, that's in an urban, growing suburban area. We did extremely well there. On the eastern side of Mississippi, we have other college towns, Mississippi State University. We did very well there, White House Wives. Uh, we were we were 60% with white voters uh, 30 years and below, you know. Oh. And uh, then on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, you know, where they vote like more kin. Well, on the western side, they're more, they vote more like New Orleans than Mississippi. So they're just not large enough, Marcos. With they need to grow, uh, and I think that it is coming. So if we have a candidate that is um, interesting, dynamic, and I leave it to history to say if I was that person or not. But you came uh, pretty close. You came six and a half points from uh, from winning in 2018 in a state that everybody thinks is just massively Republican. That was a huge accomplishment. So and, don't sell yourself again, short. Not in front of me anyway. And again, the money didn't come in. This 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 race, we got 16 million. That race, it was seven million. Oof. But the money didn't come in until the runoff, which was three weeks. So imagine we're laboring from January to October on two or three million dollars, you know, everything yeah. you have to do, TV, get out to vote and everything. And then boom, the money comes. It's like gushing in in the last three weeks when people begin to pay attention. So I know in 2018, we could have done even better. I mean, that was a runoff and Donald Trump was not on the ballot. So we got 46.4. We could have done better if the money had come in earlier. Again, three weeks you get in four it's, million. It's frustrating. Weeks. Yeah, it's, you can't it is, do anything except it throw is, it on TV. Yeah, it is very frustrating. That's why I told everybody, please invest early. And this time they did. We raised sixteen million. We gave three million to the Democratic Party to do what it had to do, and then the rest of it we put on TV and all of that. But again, it only came in September and October. Mr. Secretary, can I ask, then what do you think, and this may be the same answer, but what do you think is your biggest growth demographic profile, short-term and long-term? I mean, short-term and long-term may be different growth demographics, but if you had, you know, if you, for instance, had 16 million right now to put into something in the next year, where would, what kind of demographic would you be trying to turn out? And then where do you think the biggest growth demographic is because it's really interesting. I just want to, for our viewers, point out the difference between what you did in Mississippi versus what happened in Georgia, which is, you know, President Biden or then candidate Joe Biden outran the Democratic candidates in the general in the uh, in November. He outran them um, and you outran Biden in Mississippi. So. That's yeah. pretty fascinating in and of itself. Um, so I just wonder, wh what do you think the most immediate growth demographic is? And then and then long term, what do you think the growth demographic is? I think, is? I think uh, uh, thanks for the question. I'll answer it. But I think the reason between the disparity of the differential between the Biden and SB was the lack of the Biden investment in Mississippi. Uh, yeah. uh, so we brought them to the poll and they voted for Biden when they when they got there. So I just think that was a mistake. He wasn't going to win Mississippi, but uh, he, he would have done a little bit better. But uh, it will have helped me even more, frankly. Uh, but I understand that. The growth democratic uh, demographic, you're asking long-term and short-term. Long-term is going to be in the African-American vote. Again, uh, all the data, all the prognosticators that I'm reading 
say that in 10 years, Mississippi is going to be near 50% an African-American state. So, look, when it reaches that, you're going to have two black senators, an African-American governor. Yes, that that is definitely going to happen. Let's fast forward. (laughs) Eight eight to ten years. Uh, Right now, between now and the next two or three years, I really think it's uh, the youth vote. The youth vote, Mm -hmm. regardless of race. Sometimes uh, I'm still disappointed that they did not vote as they should have. And the the example I gave you a little while ago about going in a place where someone asked me, what did I run for? There was a young a young woman, maybe 19 years old, you know, 20 years old. She had no idea that that I had been a, a candidate on the ballot two months earlier, you know. So I just think I think it's the youth vote. They're here. They need to be motivated. They need to be compelled to understand that voting and participating in uh, Democratic elections, small d, will help them in their life. You know, this person, this young woman, was a waitress in a restaurant. Well, it was takeout due to COVID. And I'm saying, okay, like, what do you make, you know? And you certainly don't make $15 an hour. That's what I'd be voting for if I were in the U.S. Senate. So maybe it's my fault that I didn't reach her didn't get to her, didn't convince her that I was running and I will help her. So I, I'll take that thought. But between now and two and three years, the difference would be youth participation to vote for Democratic candidates, and that would get us closer. But in 10 years from now, uh, we're going to be a swing state for sure. That's uh, actually a, a sort of a great segue into the, the messaging side of the Democrats problem in Mississippi, I think. We talked to a, uh, to a, a fellow named Matt Hildreth. He runs an organization called Rural Votes. And his whole idea is that if you look at issue by issue, Democratic policies are actually very, very popular, like a $15 minimum wage. But the Democratic Party brand, for whatever reason, is dirt. And so, first of all, I assume that's why so many white voters in Mississippi with, I guess, with a, you know, overlay of racism are as Republican as they are. Is there a message that gets through to them? Uh, is, is, is passing this COVID relief bill, is that something that would help Mississippi Democrats down the road? What it, do you think? It was more difficult in this presidential cycle than in the one I ran before simply because uh, they came out to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, my opponent, the, the senator who won, got about 5% fewer votes than Donald Trump. So, so I mean, look at the strata. You got, you got you, you have Joe Biden, 40,000 plus Mike Espy. You got Donald Trump, and then you got 5% fewer votes for his opponent. So the difference was Trump, okay? There's no doubt. He told them to come, come on November, come personally, don't, don't mail your vote. It's it's you know, uh, it's rigged. So come and they did. They they blew the hinges off of the the voting voting precincts. So that that was the that was the difference in in this election. Uh, but I think what we have to do to to answer your question, Marcos, is just uh, is just to get out there early. We got a lot of rural votes because we focus on rural issues. You know, we try to get beyond the cultural stuff. You, you know. Think about this. Mississippi changed its flag. The flag had a Confederate iconography. That is gone now. They voted for medical marijuana. <laughs> Got 70% of the vote in Mississippi. 
And something that a lot of people are not aware of, that was a that was a measure in the 1890 Constitution that gerrymandered black votes. So in order to run for office back then until about, well, November, in order to win statewide office, you had to win a majority of all of the legislative districts. Whereas in 1890, black voters who constituted the majority of the population only lived, you know, they were congregated in certain areas. So that was put into the Constitution to eliminate any black person from ever being elected to statewide office. And that is gone. That won about 70 percent as well. So you had three progressive measures all passing on the same day. Easily. Uh, and uh, when I was on the ballot. So Mississippi is changing, man. And so in my race, uh, we did as well as we did with the white vote in concentrating on rural issues like Medicaid expansion. You know, making sure the rural hospitals could remain open, making sure that uh, we had prescription drug costs that could be covered by Medicaid expansion, making sure that the emergency rooms remain open. And people, I think, heard that beyond their trepidation with all the cultural stuff. So it was very difficult in this environment. I, I would have loved I would have loved to have gotten the same raw vote total in 2018 than I did in uh, uh, and then I would have won. We got we got more votes than the Democrat ever running for federal office of Mississippi's history this time, but we had Trump at the top of the ticket, which which really hurt. Do you do you think that you got those because of these progressive issues that you or the the progressive things that were on the ballot that people people were probably gravitated towards that the same people who voted for you gravitated towards those uh, particular issues? Yeah, that certainly helped. That certainly helped, especially in the um, in these in the suburban, semi-urban areas that I've mentioned mm-hmm. before around Memphis, Tennessee, and then the college towns for sure. And uh, they, uh, the medical marijuana initiative, had money behind it, uh, and uh, they ran that as a nonpartisan type of initiative. <laughs> you know, uh, they were very, very successful. So yes, when there's money behind these things. Uh, those things tend to do a lot better, but you got to come in early. Joe Trippi was your was your your strategist, one of your strategists. Is that right? Am in I wrong? 2018, yes. In 2018. So I remember we had him on, and he talked about you know running these focus groups and having you know I think particularly white women sort of look down at their shoes while they were saying I. I, I guess I'm going to vote for a Democrat. I mean, just kind of, and not, they weren't talking. I don't think they were necessarily just talking about you, you know, that they were voting. It was a vote against Trump is what it was. It was this registration of a vote against Trump because he was just too bad, but he just trippy was talking about this just deep ingrained cultural, you know, hesitancy and rejection of the term democrat yeah do you think you can be you can overcome that i mean not just you personally but democrats or you personally (laughs) well i mean that was a in many ways that was a toxic brand certainly in 2020 but let me just give you an anecdote i'll be very very quick so i went I, i was driving um driving in a county west of here incredibly red right and uh i got lost so i was trying to turn around and there was a white woman probably around 50 years years of age 
and uh, she was uh, she was um, accepting donations to get into the park. You know, I'd made a wrong turn going into a park. So uh, as she came to the car, and as soon as she saw me, her face lit up. And I went, okay, I'm in a rural area, white woman. She didn't vote for me. She, <laughs> she, I rode down the window and she said, Mr. Espy. I said, yeah, she says, we love you. She said, we love you. And so my, my countenance brightened. And I said, uh, well, great. Well, did you vote for me? She said, uh, I couldn't. She said, it's that abortion thing, that abortion thing. And you're a Democrat. I, I say, well, okay. Uh, I'll say, well, I'm a Democrat, yeah. I said, well, let's talk about life and choice and all that. And we had a good conversation. And I may have flipped her had I been a chance to do it earlier. So, so you know, it's just that brand that you bring, all these, all these cultural, um, you know, issues that they're likely to already be predisposed to, to not to like you. But you got to get there and speak with them one-on-one. And you can flip them voter by voter. We just did not have enough time. So, uh, Mr. Secretary, we are almost out of time, but one last question. Um, are you looking at any future runs for office or what's, what's your future right now look like in the years ahead? When I was 30 years old, I ran for Congress and won uh, first black congressman since Reconstruction. And that district was not majority black back then. Uh, it was not. And we flipped it. Uh, we got 9% of the black vote and, and about 12% of the white vote and flipped that. And then I served. And then, of course, we, we know I ran twice. Uh, Marcos, you, you know, you never say never. I, I spent three years of my life. Um, I'm in my law office today. I'm the only one here. I've got to regenerate this law practice. And I, I think I'm going to devote my next few years to doing that. But so I, you may not see me for a while. But I'm not saying I'm done. Uh, All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be one of those helping to, to, to register voters. I'm going to be helping uh, on the issues relating to things people care about and need, like the Medicaid expansion. I want to do some things around that. I want to, even though I'm not in the Senate, and I regret that, there were issues that I ran on. I ran to do something, not just to be something. And I'm going to keep working on those issues. And if, if that means I have to run for something later on, we'll see. Who, can I just ask one one last? This is how I am as a journalist. There's always one last question. But who who are the stars that we should be Democratic stars that we should be keeping our eyes on in Mississippi? Well, we have a we have a really good mayor. Uh, I'm supporting him. Uh, you know, we have the municipal races uh, this cycle in April and in June. Uh, his name is Lumumba. He's a great guy. Uh, Jackson. Jackson. Jackson Mayor. Uh, we have uh, we have. Um, some young, if I can speak racially, if you don't mind, yeah. we, we have a we have a white female uh, who just beat a uh, Republican in the Mississippi legislature who had been there thirty years. Thirty, she was two years old when he got elected, and she beat him in the last legislative race last year. Uh, so I knocked on doors with her in two thousand nineteen. Uh, we have another black woman. What's her name? What's her name? Shonda Yates. Shonda. Oh, Shonda. Yes. Shonda, Shonda Yates. Yeah. We have a black nurse, a uh, frontline worker up in uh, North Mississippi who won by four votes. And she beat a Republican legislator who had been there for years and years. 
and she won the white boat in the Memphis suburbs. So, but there, there, there are others. There, there are others. Okay. Uh, there, there are others. A lot of others. Secretary thank Mike Espy, thank you so much for joining us. An incredible pleasure, and I suspect we'll be calling on you again as I continue digging into Mississippi and our chances of flipping the state blue in the years ahead. Thank you so much. And I and I'll be digging with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Karen, you know, one of the Mississippi is not like other states that are sort of flippable. And this is what makes it very, every state is unique. Every state is different. Arizona is different than Georgia. They took different paths to flipping them blue. Mississippi is uh, only about 30% suburban. The Memphis suburbs are a big part of that. That is the national average is about 50%. So it is not only low, but it's it's the fourth lowest percentage of suburbs. It's, or the third, third or fourth. It is the fourth most rural, doesn't have a lot of cities. Uh, right. Jackson's the largest city, 160,000 people. So when you look at, at Mississippi, you can't use the same playbook as other states because you don't have the big suburbs to, to draw on, uh, you know, white college educated people in the suburbs. You don't have that to draw on, really. Uh, it is a low education state. In fact, it is last in college degrees in the country. So education is a big driver of partisan identification. That's one reason the suburbs are shifting. So you don't have that to go off. The white population is extremely evangelical and the religiosity of, of a white person is actually a big partisan marker as well. So when you look at those factors, you're like, oh yeah, it doesn't, doesn't look like a typical state that might be trending in our direction. But then there's that question of the black vote is growing uh, exponentially. You have that youth vote that isn't as um, as Republican as their elders. And in fact, the white youth votes, I mean, just youth vote in general, but including white people were a big factor for Mississippi ditching its Confederate flag. They were right. in the college campuses. There was huge activism. And I don't want to give white people the, the credit, but they were they were very, you know, white students were very engaged in that battle. So there, there are it's a different path, but it's there. Right. Right. Well, I, I mean, I don't doubt that. And especially especially when you start to talk about the demographic growth. Right. But it was very interesting that that the secretary said that he would put money immediately into trying to get out the youth vote. Um, that was interesting. You know, but I keep going back to and it's only because we've heard it in several interviews now with people who focus on, you know, flippable voters or, you know, people who are thinking of voting or who are regularly vote Republican, thinking of voting Democrat or, you know, have flipped their vote for one election cycle. And we've heard this from, you know, Joe Trippy. We heard it from Matt Hildreth of Rural Organizing.org, which we brought up earlier, um, who you brought up earlier. It's just that Democrats have this brand problem in these, you know, right of center districts, in these red leaning states where people just, you know, it's really cultural and it has little to nothing to do with policy. I mean, there is the abortion issue. But for the most part, you know, things like if you look at Missouri, for instance, Missouri just voted for the Medicaid expansion. Right. I mean, last year. And that's something progressives have been fighting for. Right. And so if you if you look at and, and you know, Mississippi, the, you know, the flag vote and also legalizing medical marijuana. Right. So these are progressive issues that that we've been championing. Right. And the question is, why can't Democrats 
win on policy, right? And it, it's it, you know, we and we've been we've been screaming about this for years, progressives. Our policies yeah. poll well, right? Our policies poll well. People like them. Today, we're going to be talking to Sarah Longwell, who, uh, thanks to some technical difficulties, we had a hard time getting her on our live show, but we got her now. We worked it out. We figured out what was going on. And we're so excited to talk to her about the future of the Republican Party. Sarah Longwell is the publisher of The Bulwark. She is also the founder of several anti-Trump Republican groups, including Republican Voters Against Trump. So she is somebody who has certainly walked the walk when talking about reforming the Republican Party, or at least keeping it from being taken over by the Trump reactionary. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for being patient with us. Thanks for having me. Honestly, I would do anything for my old friend, Carrie Elleveld. So I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's quite a plug right there. Thank you. So, Carrie, take it away. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So, you know, our listeners have listened to Marcos and I banter about the future of the Republican Party for like three episodes with no Republicans actually weighing in. Uh, so we thought we would reach out to the source, right? Uh, someone who actually has always been uh, a never Trumper. And who is actively involved in trying to, you know, rip uh, the party back away from from his his clenches. And what is happening with the Republican Party? Tell us. Guys, it's not good. Um, It's not good. Uh, We we are watching the Republican Party sort of walk off of a cliff, uh, following following Trump. Uh, You don't have to look. Just look at the numbers. Seventy three percent or and over 70 percent in multiple polls show that they believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They believe this this sort of big lie that he's told. You have uh, a new Suffolk USA Today poll that came out this week that showed uh, that almost half of the Republican Party would join a Donald Trump party. And, you know, when Kelly and Conway joked that they should rename CPAC TPAC uh, because it is it is Trump's party. That's not wrong. This is true. And here's the thing. I don't I don't want to admit that it's true because I've spent the last four years at every stage trying to figure out both not just how to pull the party back from Trump, but also believing that that was totally doable, totally possible, that, 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 that something had gone haywire, right? My initial thinking was, well, look, there was this huge crowded field in 2016. He's over there by himself in his burn it all down lane. He gets a plurality of voters. It's a, it's a one-off. It's, a, it's an accident of history uh, that he gets the nomination. A further accident of history that, that he beats Hillary Clinton by such narrow margins because Comey comes out with a letter right beforehand, you know, that this is all like an accident and that people don't really want him because I don't want to believe that not just people in my party, but that the country decided this is who we want to be. This is who we view as our leader. And so then we, we thought, OK, well, we can primary him. Right. There can be a Republican who's going to primary him, who's going to take it back for real conservatives or, or real Republicans or even just people who are pro-liberal democracy. You know, Larry Hogan didn't want to do it. You know, Ben Sass didn't want to do it. There was a few people who jumped in, people like Joe Walsh. And, and but, you know, they just didn't go anywhere. And all this time the party is being more and more captured by Trump. Every time you think that something happens that is going to break the fever, he stands on the stage with Vladimir Putin and sides against America's intelligence community. Surely this is it. He says there's good people on both sides. Okay, well, surely this is the moment. Uh, So more and more, though, no matter what happens, just nothing breaks the fever and it gets worse all the time. So so let me ask you this. Do you think, because I've always 
I, I kind of have been on the side of, oh, I never I never really believed there was a possibility for a third party. For, for a long time, I haven't believed that. Following January 6th, I was like, maybe there is. And not from the Trump side, because Trump's successfully taken over the party at this point. And there's no reason for him to start a third party. He is the party. Um, so I'm wondering, for, from a you know, never-Trumper, I know there's been some conversations among former G- GOP officials and things like that. People who know something about governments, governance, know something about politics and electoral politics. Do you think there's any chance of a, of a third party effort here? I don't. I wish that I did. I also wish this. I have a lot of wishes um, and not a lot. Not a lot's going my way. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in a lot of those conversations. These are a lot of the people that I've been kind of in a coalition with for the last several years. And look, there's a lot of really well-meaning people and they just, they don't consider themselves Democrats. And so they're thinking, well, what do we do? What do you do if you're a conservative and you don't think you're a Democrat, but this MAGA Republican party just isn't for you? Well, we can start a third party. The problem is, is like, like a lot of things, right? That's a bunch of people in Washington saying, well, if you build it, maybe they'll come. My view is that actually you create sort of a dangerous scenario. Like if you believe, as I do, that the current version of the Republican Party is a dangerous version of itself, right, is an anti-democratic version of itself to the extent that I could have never imagined. If you believe 100%. that that's the case, we're, we're, we're 100% with you. Then, then, then you have to think like what you do is you have to keep that political party from power, And the way that you do it is with the biggest, broadest coalition possible. And I think sometimes people think like, well, maybe you can split the Republican Party, you know, by by having this little faction. But that's not really what happens. It's the same reason I was really against Justin Amash running, because there was every poll showed that he would have pulled just as much from the center left as he would from this. It's not it's not if you form some kind of center right party um, or party of conservatives that like it automatically breaks off, you know, from the Republican coalition. That's not quite how it works. Yeah, one of the I mean, there's lots of reasons that Donald Trump offends me. And and one of them is that he has made it okay. I, I look at Mitt Romney and John McCain as a kind of sympathetic figures. And and policy-wise, you know, I don't agree with 99% of what they what they espouse, but now suddenly I have this sort of this fondness for them. And even George Bush doesn't seem so bad. And that that just sort of crushes my 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 soul. That but it what it does is it makes me sort of uh, nostalgic for a time when I didn't have to fear for the fate of American democracy if my side didn't turn out, right? If, if Mitt Romney had won, okay, we'd have lower tax rates for billionaires and maybe we'd have more inequity in our economic system. And, but I wouldn't actually worry about is there going to be a next election? And so I actually now feel incredibly vested in the idea of, of, of a sane opposition, uh, it seems not even the best word, right? But one that at least respects democratic norms. What would it take to get the Republican Party back there? I mean, is this salvageable? Here's what it would take. So going into the election, everybody said, hey, can you can the can the Republican Party recover post Trump? And I said, it absolutely can. Here's what has to happen. Donald Trump has to be thoroughly rebuked in this election. It has to just be an absolute blowout. It has to be the kind of thing that the kind of electoral defeat that makes Republicans go, oh my gosh, what have we done? We can never do that again. That's not what we got. I mean, I was like, gotta, you got to blow this thing out and then and then we're going to come in and have a fight over the soul uh, for the soul of the Republican Party. And I plan to be in that fight. That's just not where we were. It was this huge mixed bag. It was, again, a very narrow race. And Republicans 
they're so enticed by the fact that he drew out these 10 million additional voters. You know, they, they, yeah, they, it's why they keep repeating this number. They, it's 74 million. They always say 75 million. But the reason they just say it over like a mantra is they can't believe that many people turned out to vote for them. And now they're in this sort of stuck between this rock and this hard place of saying, well, this is the only guy who turns out. Nobody's going to turn out for, you know, Ted Cruz like that. Nobody's going to turn out for Josh Hawley like that. They know that. They're like, this is our last chance. Is And that's why insurrection be damned. They're still, you know, rolling up to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring to say, please continue to, to be on our side because they don't know how to do it without him. But right? and I mean, simple math says that we got more and we got a lot more because he motivated uh, not just most, more voters to vote Democratic, but more um, growth demographics. I mean, if you're really going to stake the future of your party on old white rural men who are literally dying off, while the growth demographics are, are heavily turning out for Democrats, I mean, isn't that just a basic, simple math equation that they should be doing in their heads? We're losing the suburbs. We're losing young people. We're losing people of color. Ergo, maybe we need to go in a different direction. Well, that's that's the if I just described the rock, you've just described the hard place. Right. So that's what they're between where, of course, like the, there's, a, there's also like just the hard reality of, OK, he turned out uh, 74 million voters. It wasn't enough. You lost the House, you lost the Senate, and you lost the presidency because while he motivates his side, he also motivates an intensity not seen ever before in political history against him. And that's where Republicans find themselves, where they just don't know what to do about this guy. Right. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence that there's any Republicans who have, you know, particularly fresh ideas since the Reagan era era. I mean, really, I mean, and maybe that maybe you don't like that. But like, I don't see anyone. The only person I see who even seems impassioned about anything really impassioned is Adam Kinzinger, Representative Adam Kinzinger. But, you know, everybody else is like, I feel like it's just in sort of a state of inertia. It's like, well, we this is what we've been doing. We don't know how to do anything else. And so we're just going to continue doing this thing and hope that Trump saves us. Let me ask you real quick. There is this and whether or not you believe this is true, but there has been this uptick in Republicans disaffiliating from the party post January 6th, post the, the, the riot at the Capitol. And I wonder if you think that that's really representative of some uh, bigger undercurrent. And if you have any clue as to whether or not it's more so, um, you know, sort of conservative principled Republicans saying, I can't be with a party of Trump, or if it's more so people who are pro-Trump saying, you know, the Republican Party isn't isn't Trump loyal enough for me. I mean, you know, it, which side of that equation that might fall on? Yeah, it's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. So uh, when you see so one of the numbers that really sticks out to me that I think confirms the latter uh, positions, when you saw independence jump recently, right, the, the number of independents is, is basically at a historical high. Now, I think a bunch of those people are actually MAGA people. Those are the people who are saying, I would rather join a Trump, a Trump party than a Republican party. Like to me, the crazy number about the Trump party, which was at, I believe, 48% in the Suffolk USA Today poll was the pro GOP side of that wasn't the other 50%. It was like 23% and the rest didn't know. And so the actual institutional support for the regular GOP is very, very low. And so, and, and now I do think that there's also though, we're absolutely experiencing a, a political realignment. And I'm not sure how much they're offsetting one another, but like there's just the fact that 
college educated, right leading voters uh, living in the suburbs are becoming what I guess we, we over at the bulwark call red dog Democrats, where these are people who've historically been Republicans for kind of economic reasons, but they're like squishy, soft Republicans who just look at a uh, look at people like Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin, um, and say, or Joe Biden. Like if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, you wouldn't be seeing this the same way. But like if it's Joe Biden, you just picked up a whole bunch of these college educated suburban voters who do not want to be in a political coalition with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, on the flip side, though, you're you're basically sat, you're 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 losing though a whole bunch of these white working class voters who used to be or union voters, maybe even historically Democrat. I saw them in my focus groups all the time where they were they were. Democrats who voted for Donald Trump. And when you talk to them, if you listen to them, you'd be like, yeah, you're a, you're a Republican now. <laughs> like you're definitely a yeah. Republican. Now. So I think there's there's it's 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 going both ways and how much it tips the advantage to one side or another really has to do with how much it happens geographically. Right. So like in Georgia and in Arizona, there are enough college educated suburban voters who have kind of, you know, moved to the to the center left that it's making a, a real difference and actually tipping states from red to blue. Just because this is an off-sited poll. I see it on MSNBC all the time. I know I've seen it a lot of places, but there was this political, uh, it's very similar to the Suffolk poll that you just mentioned today. It was a political morning consult poll that showed that 54% of Republicans said that they would vote for, you know, Trump as they're in a GOP primary, right? And, and then no one else got like above 6%, okay? So everybody's like, well, this is obviously still Trump's party. True, true. I say that. But the, but if you look in the crosstabs of that poll also, 17%, 57% said they wanted um, Trump to play a major role in the party. But 17% said they wanted him to play a minor role. And 18% said they wanted him to play no role at all. So I look at that 18% and I think if you lose 18% of your voters who want Trump to play no role at all, you are absolutely screwed, Trump's party or not. And I, I just wonder what you make of those numbers. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why I think you shouldn't have a third party, because I think a third party kind of sucks up that 18 percent. And I think at least a portion of that 18 percent is actually gettable for center left Democrats. Um, and 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 if and if I were the Democrats, uh, which is happening more and more every day, uh, if I were the Democrats, I would be saying, how do we make room for these people in our party? Like the people who just do not want to be in a like a political coalition with Marjorie Taylor Greene or with Trump. And they're tired of all the syncophancy. And, you know, to your point earlier, too, they're also tired of the total it being a party being totally bereft of ideas. I mean, when the Republican Party puts out a platform and the platform is usually pages upon pages upon pages of policies and things that they stand for. And this year it was one page and it was all we stand for whatever Donald Trump stands for. Like that was a that was the total manifestation of what's going on in the party. And so there's this real opportunity, especially as people, as the social issues become slightly less dominant or as relevant, like there's just the ability to pick up a bunch of those people on, on the center left. And I think, you know, if Democrats are really thoughtful about who they run in a bunch of these races and they figure out how to get a few more Connor lambs in some key spots, they could pick up some of that 18% um, and do really well for themselves. So actually that's a, that's, that that's actually a great uh, lead into what I was going to ask, which is, 
what exactly would Democrats and as a, as a liberal Democrat, I worry about being too kind to former Republicans. Right. I mean, I have a party and it stands for something. And so what exactly would you have us erode as sort of a core party platform in order to to be welcoming? I put that in quotes, welcoming to these uh, center right refugees of the modern Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I when I do the focus groups and I talk to Republicans, when I ask them what their biggest concern is about Joe Biden, they would say, well, we're worried he's going to be dominated by the far left. I was actually when I was having my technical difficulties, but I got to listen to your guest um, who's talking about rural stuff. And he was talking about the brand problem that Democrats have. That is 100 percent true. I talked to these Republicans and they don't. There's a phenomenon that I'm sure you're familiar with, this sort of negative polarization or negative polarity, where a lot of these voters that I talk to, if you said, what does it mean to you to be a Republican? Like, can you articulate what the principles are that it really stands for? And they'd kind of cast around a little bit. But if you say, what don't you like about Democrats? They got a list. Um, like they, they got they got a bunch of things that they know. And a lot of them are, they're not even total policies. It's sort of like, They want to spend all the money and they will run up the debt. And, you know, I remember very clearly I would I would moderate a lot of these groups and I'd say, well, how do you think Trump's doing on the debt? And when they would say, you know, Democrats are spending big and they'd say, well, I I think he's really chipping away at it. That's like divorce from reality. But it's it's and so what, what you're hearing there is not a like, oh, here's what's actually happening politics. It's like, here's how I'm mapping my perceptions of both parties onto this conversation. And it's something sort of deeper and harder to change. Like, um, I don't know that you can just be like, here's a list of policy platforms or, you know, policies like, does that appeal to you now? It is cultural in a lot of ways. What do you do? Because it all it's almost like it doesn't matter what the policy is. It doesn't matter it, what reality is. Reality, yeah. right. How do you how do you create a messenger that they'll listen to if they won't listen to freaking Joe Biden's friend and, Joe? And actually, let me let me even be a little more specific as question <laughs> <Sorry>. because <laughs> that sentiment. What exactly is it? Actually, I'll, I'll let you answer Carrie's question because I really can't put this in words that way. But it is frustrating because you have Fox News, you have messaging, you have talk radio, you have their Facebook feeds and their friends, which are likely also conservative, and they're feeding them misinformation. And so they created that alternate reality where, you know, Donald Trump signed Veterans Choice instead of Barack Obama, right? So how do you, can you even sort of make inroads with that uh, with that crowd in a way that allows us to have voters make choices on actual policy, not on misinformation, but on reality. And then maybe if they want to be Republican, great. But at least you're basing that decision on actual reality and and facts. I mean, this is not going to come as a shock to you when I say this. uh, And and your listeners may want to dismiss it right away as like, these never Trumpers. But like, here's the thing. The Democrats have already been doing the right thing in a lot of ways. you had a choice, much like the Republicans faced, where we made a terrible choice uh, and went went with Donald Trump. You faced a crossroads between Bernie Sanders and going with the very far progressive wing of your party or Joe Biden, who represented other than Mike Bloomberg, a former Republican, the most uh, centrist candidate in that big field. Right. The party made a choice. Voters made a choice. African-Americans and, and college educated suburban voters, they made a choice and they picked Joe Biden. Joe Biden was the only person beating Donald Trump in this race, in my opinion. The Democrats also nominate, and we could argue about that. But that's that is my. I believe that. I believe. I, that, I, I believe that more and more. Well, actually, in, in, hi- the actual in final, hindsight, yes, in hindsight, I mean, I was a Warren supporter, right? So, like, you know, and it, I made no bones about it. But I, you know, I I don't know if she could have won it. 
Definitely. No. Anyway, I will. I will like. I would stake anything on the fact that the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and just about every other Democrat in that field was going to get crushed. And one of the ways that I know is this: the split ticket voting. Okay, the number of the the people who so and this is self-serving to some degree because I ran a project that was Republican voters against Trump. So I was laser focused very specifically on people who were institutionally Republican or constitutionally Republican, but were willing to vote for Joe Biden. And the fact is, we know that that made a difference because at the end of the day, when everybody turned everyone out that they could on both sides, it came down to a few hundred thousand people who voted for the Republican congressman and for Joe Biden. And like, that is where that like you. Yeah, need no, we to, saw that in Georgia. We definitely yeah, saw that in Georgia. Georgia. And, yeah. and, and, and frankly, because Trump wasn't on the ticket or because he was shaking everybody's confidence by lying to them about the voting machines, you know, you saw Republicans not turn out as high. And, and but so anyway, but but look, in 2018, I thought what were, I thought what Democrats did was outstanding. Like I was like they went and found a whole bunch of Connor Lambs, Abigail Spanbergers, Alyssa Slotkins, just a whole bunch of people that if I was living in those districts, I would have voted for myself. They had military backgrounds. Many of them worked for the CIA. They profile as people that a moderate sort of centrist or even center right voter would say that person seems that person doesn't seem like a radical lefty. Uh, that person seems and they ran they ran on just not repealing uh, well, affordable care. Act. Yeah, for, yeah, but not just affordable care act. They specifically ran on. I'm blanking on the provision. It's the most popular one, though. Oh, oh the, pre-existing, pre-existing conditions coverage. Yeah, pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. That's what they ran on. Great. Like, take one of the most popular provisions. Take a very uh, a woman with a military background who flew helicopters, like Mikey Sherrill. Put her in a swing district, and bing, bang, boom! You've got a landslide. You pick up forty seats. Like to me, that is the secret sauce. The secret sauce is how do you? And this is what Biden did. That to me is people don't sort of celebrate the miraculousness of this enough. Which is that there was a coalition from AOC to Bernie Sanders over to me and Bill Crystal. It all said yes to the same thing. It's crazy, and like, actually. To me, it is crazy. Is, to me, that is it. Like, that's the win. And that's why I don't support a third party. I support all of us swallowing a little bit and getting somebody who is to the middle, essentially, of us that can broadly beat back the MAGA version of this Republican Party. You know, in, was, in order to save the nation, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And you know yeah. what? It was it was black voters in South Carolina that said, we love Warren. We love Harris. We love all these other candidates. And we just don't trust America uh, and their love affair with Donald Trump for these candidates to win. So we're going to pick the most inoffensive, <laughs> most white, most old you know, candidate that we have in, you know, non-Jewish candidate on our, you know, in the roster. And, and they were right. I think in the end, they made a very cold, hard, logical, calculated decision that seemed in, unfathomable to me at the time. And they made the right call. Let me let me get down to brass tacks real quick on what's happening right now with COVID relief, right? You know, we're going to get probably you know somewhere between zero and zero votes from Republicans on that. I don't know. Maybe maybe there'll be something more, but not much. So if you're thinking about that, which is it's a very popular bill. If you're thinking about that bill, does that give a Connor Lamb or you know a Mickey Sherrill or someone like that in 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 a new swing district? a something to run on is that it's not quite the same as we're going to save pre-existing conditions coverage for you but there, is there some piece of that bill that you think is so broadly popular that they can you know use it to their advantage in a swingy district 
Yeah, I mean, look, giving people free money is popular. Uh, that's why Donald that's Trump knew that. <laughs> yeah, and Donald Trump did know it, he, and he knew to put his name on the check. And I will tell you, look, there's all kinds of stuff in this bill that I think are liberal wish list hobby horses that I don't like. And I wish it was a more targeted bill. And I basically agreed with Mitt Romney with his Wall Street Journal op-ed when I was like, I agree with a lot of this math, whatever. That being said, the politics of it, the politics of it are lots of people are hurting and they don't care about the weird fact that like there's a bunch of money for schools two years from now they like really they don't care they're just like are you giving me money so i can pay my rent while i am still unemployed like are you doing things that like if if joe biden 18 months from now if we've all got shots in our arms and grandparents are hugging their grandkids life is back to normal that pent-up demand is driving the economy uh you know there's a bunch of new jobs being created and people feel good like that's what they can run on that's what that, that's like. That is the thing that will help more than anything. It's not like like, you know, there's a bunch of things. But but I will say this. Democrats are going to have to sell it because Republicans are going to. Oh, there's a bunch yeah. of things in there. Yeah. The Republicans know how to how to say they're You know, if the economy is sluggish, they're going to be like, look at that fifteen dollar minimum wage, which, by the way, is one of the things that I think is a bad thing to do in this bill. But like they'll take the fifteen dollar minimum wage. They'll take what like the, all bowl bunch of the specifics. And they are good. At, at, at being able to to make the case that these were bad for the economy, that they ran up the debt, that they didn't help, that they were poorly targeted. And so I think the question is, is are Democrats going to be able to not just assume that it was a good thing and everybody was happy with it? Like everybody assumed that COVID was going to hurt Trump. No, there were plenty of places where it was really helping Trump, real because they didn't yeah. like the idea of Democrats. Shutting down. So you just have to, I think so much of this is like cultural and tribal. And so you really do have to go out and sell it because it's popular right now. Uh, lots of things are popular in theory. So you got to hope that it, it really works for people. So, Sarah, we actually have time for one more question. And I actually think this is a good one. As you look at towards the future of your party, who do you think are going to be the standard bearers? Is it the Ben Sassies and Lynn Cheney's? Who's, who's going to lead the resistance to what is right now the majority Trumpian wing of the of the uh, Republican Party? I think it's a multi-cycle fight. Uh, I, I think that, look, I think Adam Kinzinger is, who's been brought up before, Adam Kinzinger has like made it his mission. He, because of redistricting, he may very well find himself without a district, um, you know, after they redraw the map. And I think that he's, this is a personal mission for him um, to figure out how to, how to pull the party back from Trump's clutches. I do. I think I think Ben Sass wants to be president. So like Adam Kinzinger is now on a kamikaze mission. So he's yeah. he's a, he's interesting. It's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> he is like he's he's great in that he's just not bound the way that like Ben Sass wants to be president someday. Nikki Haley wants to be president like real soon. And so, you know, they are they are they have different calculations, right? Like Ben Sass is because we also we know how Ben Sass operates. We saw him do it. It was like when he thought he might not get reelected, he just like went dark for a while and then you know popped back up to be like, actually, I'm Trump's number one critic again. And so and true. you know he he's making a six year bet that the party is in a different place six years from now. I hope that it is, but I will tell you my theory remains the same, which is that the only way that this horrible version of the Republican Party returns to its senses, and I believe we need a, a, a sane center right party in this country. But the only way that happens is if they cannot build a winning political coalition. They have to be like, you have to kill this thing in order to save it. If you're me and you want a center right party, you have got to make sure that they are defeated. Kevin McCarthy cannot become Speaker of the House. He was somebody who said that he has lied to people. He said Donald Trump won this election. It is disqualifying. You have to make sure that Kevin McCarthy to deny him political power. And then 
of a couple cycles of that, I feel like you'll start they'll start to get religion and they'll look for new leaders. But I think at the moment you're looking at a dogfight between a very outmatched 10% of the party or maybe 15% of the party with some formidable people like Liz Cheney, but still it is the it is the smaller part. Sarah Longwell, she is the publisher of The Bulwark. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation. And I actually hope we can have you back to discuss some of these things and maybe even get into some of the uh, policy stuff if we want to <laughs> if we want to debate some of this stuff. But this idea of a of a uh, coalition between that that 15 percent of disaffected Republicans uh, on the center right with Democrats is actually a very intriguing one. And, and it's kind of a double edged sword for Democrats, but it actually could have a lot of value and a lot of benefits in the short term, particularly in ushering and fostering the return of the same Republican Party, a center right party that doesn't want to destroy the democracy. And I think we all have a vested interest in that, even if we are hardcore liberals. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. So that is our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Mark Espy and Sarah Longwell for being our guest. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast, daily K-O-S. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.